Hello, Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Today's conversation is with James Sills. James is a musician in a couple of bands, as he will discuss, and also a choir master, inspiring people through music and improving their lives, as he explains to me as we talk. I first met James when we worked together on the Good Life Experience with his friend Dom this year, 2017 in fact. He ran several choirs over the course of the weekend and um, he was absolutely brilliant at doing that. It was a big success. But it was really just meeting James and talking to James before the Good Life Experience that I realised that I really liked him and I wanted to talk to him on this podcast. I'm not sure quite what it was, but he has a charisma and a warmth and a real genuineness. And as befits someone that I talk to on Mavericks, he's doing something really interesting and really original and making a living out of it. And I think that there's a lot to learn from that and there's a lot to be inspired by. Anyway, James and I met at Harden in late November 2017. And we, um, I asked him to bring his guitar. So we repaired, I do like that word, we repaired to the new event space, which is a 1920s cricket pavilion that we have done up over the course of 2017. And it's a nice quiet space. It has, as James explains, good acoustics. And um, we set up the equipment and we sat down and talked. James also played a song at the end of it. Of course, I haven't got any specialist recording equipment, so I hope that my little H4N Pro Zoom does the music justice. But um, I've done the best that I can, and I'm sure that Jim, my wonderful editor, can tidy things up. Anyway, um, if you want to get hold of any of James's music, um, I'll list a couple of things at the end of this conversation. But for now, here is me talking to James Sills in North Wales in November 2017. What, what really um, interests me about you is that, you know, you love music and music informs everything and, and we'll come to that. But I think that the fascinating thing is that you were on a career path. You're a teacher of secondary school. And then about a year ago, you decided to give it all up and start teaching essentially just music and work just in music. Where, where did the impulse come from and how easy was that to do? In many ways it was, it was easy in that uh, everything that I'm doing now in terms of my choirs and my performing, I'd been doing alongside my teaching, um, but it was always when I was teaching, doing all these other things on the side. And I think there was a, a, a realisation that actually these things that I was doing on the side were actually the most important things in my life. And um, the two realms of teaching and kind of, you know, running my choirs and performing never were always fully separate in my mind because I, I, I was teaching music uh, at the secondary school and kind of teaching everything from music theory to bits of piano, running the jazz bands and improvisation classes and getting people through GCC and, and A-levels. So it was an incredibly broad focus. Whereas I suppose what I do now is a little bit more focus in that I, I'm mainly working with, with adults and enabling them to access singing and enjoy singing. But actually a lot of the tools that I use to do that are very much informed by what I was doing when I was teaching. Yeah, so, there's, so actually they're quite similar. But what, where was the school that you were teaching at? I was teaching at a, a, a grammar school on the Wirral. 
and it was actually my first teaching job. I really landed on my feet at a school where the kids were incredibly able, keen to learn, um, but there was also a huge amount of scope to develop the music department. So I did things like set up a regular termly songwriters night where um, the pupils would, would come and... It was always like a structured open mic night and over the seven or eight years there I saw people grow in confidence and perform songs and go off and form bands and things like that. Um, but I was also able to develop my choir chops. I hadn't really run choirs before I joined that school. I didn't tell them that. I just, you know, launched in and did it. And, you know, like lots of things I learned on the job, really. Yeah. And uh, that, be, that kind of half an hour, the, the choir rehearsal every Tuesday lunchtime became the highlight of my week. So how old were you when you started teaching there? I uh, must have been 25, 26. And that, was that, that's, I mean, that always strikes me with teachers that that's quite a difficult age to be teaching because you're not although you seem like a hugely grown-up individual to the kids you're not that much older are you no I, mem- I do remember starting on my first day and thinking you know looking at the six forms and thinking are they, they going to really take me seriously you know yeah and um but but actually at that point I'd, I'd been out of university quite a few years um i'd spent a year in west africa playing music there um, and then I came back and did, did some, uh, a few years kind of doing some community work, community music in Liverpool. So the, the music teaching um, definitely wasn't a kind of a, a default kind of option. A lot of people do music degree and think, well, you know, what can I do now? I'll tell you what, I'll do some teaching for a while and work it out. It was quite a conscious decision to go in, into teaching, but I always not felt like an outsider, but I'd spent years working in quite, um, quite dynamic kind of um, settings, working with community groups, working with some quite under-resourced communities in terms of music. Uh, so I was working in Anfield in, in North Liverpool. I was also working with, um, with, with, with people in, in, in Ghana and West Africa. And I, I really enjoyed being the person kind of to come in and, and to be, you know, slightly going against the grain, against the system, whatever that system was. Um, and so my idea of, of going into teaching was, well, maybe I can actually still do that, but actually do it from within the system. So just to understand, so you, you, you were doing that, and now, so tell me exactly what <laughs> you're doing now. Right, okay, well, what I'm doing now is that I am a full-time uh, community choir leader, so I, I work for myself, and I suppose if, if you describe what my business was, it is getting people to sing, so I run inclusive in that there is no um, audition, there is no need to read music, I don't use musical notation, so that is removed as a potential barrier to accessing singing. So currently I run two large community choirs, one on the Wirral, one in North Wales. Uh, I run a workplace choir at the Countess Hospital in Chester. Um, And other than that I perform with a group called the Spooky Men's Chorale and um, a a group uh, based in the Isles of Scilly called the Rough Island Band. Uh, which all sounds kind of quite disparate, but in, in my mind it is all incredibly connected and the two actually do feed, you know, in, into the other. So with, ex- with, the choir, with the choirs, which is, which is really interesting to me, how do you get... Who, that's community-funded or government-funded or local government-funded? or No, none of those. That's entirely by the people paying subscription. Um, so the, the, out of my two choirs, uh, they both have about 70 to 80 members in, in each, which is great. So I love standing at the front and just seeing them all and, and feeling you know, the, the power of their voices you know, every week. Um, the way that my We're All Choir built up is that that started as a group of parents at the school who wanted to get together to sing. 
and it snowballed from you know our early days of 15 members or so to a couple of years ago where I had to kind of you know shut the uh, shut the doors because we got up to 80 which has kind of our capacity number really and that was entirely through through word of mouth so people pay a monthly a termly subscription um, and because we have a big waiting list I always know um, you know how many people we've got and so you know when deciding to give up teaching I actually knew that that what I had w- w- was fairly sustainable, looking at it from a kind of a, a business point of view. Yeah, and, and then my, my more, more recent choir, my North Wales choir, when I moved out here a couple of years ago, that was a case of putting up a few posters, 60 people came to first rehearsal, more people have joined since. I just think there was a huge desire um, of people to sing and come together and to be part of something positive. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because choirs are obviously, you know, back in fashion. And that's obviously been helped by TV and, and all the rest of it. But I think, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, the idea of being in a choir was a bit weird and a bit nerdy. But now they're, they're springing up everywhere. I mean, my wife's a member of a choir and, and, I, and I can see when I watch her what absolute joy it brings to her. But wh- why do you think that, I mean, if, that, if I'm right in the idea that, you know, they are more popular than they were, why do you think that is? I think you're right in that a certain type of choir maybe is more popular. So the, the model that, that where the choirs that, that I'm running in terms of it's inclusive, it's open access, the repertoire is very broad. We sing music from a lot of music from the African continent as well as traditional music. I think that type of choir, really, there has been a huge surge in popularity. I think choirs in the past might have had an image problem and I still think there's a long way to go. Um, in, in terms of that, people think that choirs have to be very formal, they have to be very competitive. You get glared at if you sing the notes wrong. Or they're in church or something like that, which puts a lot of people yeah, off. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And um, I kind of think there's the right choir out there for, for everybody. So there's probably people listening to this podcast who sing in a choir and think, well, I actually quite like it being formal and that we have notation and, and whatever. And, and that's fantastic because that caters for that type of person. But it doesn't, it doesn't for someone who thinks I'd like to sing in a choir, but I have no previous experience. Yeah, or, yeah. exactly. And, and I think for me, that is where the real excitement and the real joy is, is taking that person on that journey um, from being someone who, who will often turn up to their first rehearsal and say, look, I'm not really sure I should be here, but I, I, maybe I should give it a go. I'm, I'm not really sure. And they kind of cower at the back. And Which is totally understandable because yeah. human nature is, to, is, for most people, is to be frightened of things they don't know how to do. Absolutely. Once they're an adult, for sure. So the, the, there's, there's obvious, it's obvious that people come partly because you know, they like you and they like the community and they also feel that they're not under threat if they don't know how to read music or whatever. But what, what is it that keeps them coming back? What, what, you know, what is it doing to people, this thing? Let, let's say, yeah, I get the community thing, they have a nice chat afterwards, that's great. But what is it that's um, that really making them want to come? I think, I think it's probably personal to everybody. I think, generally speaking, there is an incredible feel-good factor um, about singing together, which perhaps emanates from its sort of communal activity. You know, we live increasingly isolated lives, whether it's in the workplace or at home or whatever, and I think there is a joy in being part of a big group. Um, but there is a huge amount of evidence that you know, music is incredibly good for well-being. So in terms of your kind of, for your, your mental health, in terms of lowering blood pressure, in terms of connecting with yourself, because your voice is the most personal thing to you, you know, because it's an expression of you. Um, 
there's there's hundreds of reasons. Um, and do you, but do you, I, I suppose I was I was hoping that you'd you'd talk about that well-being because it, I, I also have a sense that craft, as you know, I think, and um, and, and art and and singing and things are being recognised more and more for their kind of yes, you know, their their, their wellness. Sure. Thing. And that's perfectly blindingly obvious. I mean, you feel amazing the day after you dance for two hours at night yes. or whatever. Yeah. Have people ever come to you and said, you know what, this is, this is changing my life? Um, I have, actually. Yeah, and um, it's something that I think that happens quite regularly. And it's not just me, because I have a lot of friends who are choir leaders across the country. And um, it is something that we, that we do experience a lot. People will come and, and tell us and really open up to us, which is, which is incredible. Um, and I think it's because we're tapping into something that is incredibly profound and is incredibly human, that this notion of singing together. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that it's any particularly magic that, that we're working. I think we're, we're maybe, you know, myself and, you know, m- my colleagues who do this kind of thing, we have the right set of skills and the right mentality to do this. So when people come and tell us that, that we've changed their lives, I try not to let it, you know, go to my head too much but but to, to, yeah to furnish with you an example that was my kind of disclaimer i think yeah yeah um the the halt choir we were talking about at the very first rehearsal um a lady came who i could see was was very apprehensive about about being there and um she came back and she came back and, and each week she stood a bit taller and smiled a bit more and i got a letter from her probably near christmas at the end of the first term saying um my husband of 60 years um, died in the summer and I genuinely thought I couldn't ever be happy again. Um, I saw the poster for your choir a few weeks later and I thought I need to do something that's going to try and get me out of this. And she said, being in this group has made me smile again. It's, it's brought me back to myself and um, <clears throat> get a bit choked up talking about no, it. No, I think it's amazing. And uh, a few months later we had a big fundraising concert and loads of her, not just children, but her grandchildren, and perhaps even great-grandchildren were there, supporting her, cheering her on. Um, so that, that is properly life-changing. Yeah, it is, yeah, absolutely. So it strikes me that one of, that, that's really interesting you hear that and hear you kind of, you know, being emotional about it. One of your principal skills is that you, I imagine, am I right, that you are sort of gentle and sensitive in yourself, so you... The reason you're good at this is you can read that crowd and know who needs, well, probably who needs to be told to shut up a bit and pipe down in the gentlest possible way. But the challenge is getting those at the back yeah. in. Absolutely, it? yeah. It's, it's all about meeting people where they are, isn't it? I think it's about empathy. It's about creating the right conditions, I think. What you're asking when people are coming to a choir rehearsal, people are coming to sing, they are giving of themselves. You know, they're opening their mouth and they're making... A sound which is incredibly scary for people if you haven't done that yourself. Um, it's your personal voice. Often, you know, you might be singing songs that, are, that you find incredibly moving, and, and quite often people will have to stop singing in a rehearsal because they because they need to stop and cry, or, or and, and that's fine. But in order to get people to that place, you have to create the right environment yes, for that to happen. But, but, but uh, have you always been good? You know, good with people in that sort of yeah. I've, I've always yeah. I think I, have, I probably have actually. Um, and I, 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 who knows where, you know, where, where the sensibilities come from, but I spent a lot of my time when I was younger, um, my, my sister has got special needs and, um, and I, I spent a lot of time making music and spending time with her and, and her kind of school friends and people 
um, with, with, who were affected by various um, various conditions, and I, you know, met some really amazing people, and but just really found that investing time and being gentle really could bring out the best in people. I think, and and it's only really now that I'm starting to put all these pieces together. Yes, you don't really ever think about it really in that way because well, it never. But life is like that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, they, yeah, they, yeah. And exactly. I think probably the big change that you've made has enabled those things to fall into place. I imagine. Sure. I mean, in the you know, kind of what you've done is you've created an environment in which those things can happen. Yeah, I think linked to that as well, what I was saying about my sister, for a long time um, I thought about going into music therapy as, as, as a discipline, which is an incredibly powerful um, you know, kind, kind of way of working with, with people who can't access music in a traditional way, so whether it be people suffering with dementia or people who are you know, severely autistic. And so all the way through university, that was kind of at the back of my mind. And... Um, and, and whilst I didn't kind of pursue that path because other things kind of popped up, I guess, before then, I actually feel what I'm doing now, working with my choirs, actually is doing... That is, therapy is very thing. Much, yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. much doing that thing, yeah. So what sort of things would you do with your sister? Is she older or younger than you? Uh, she's, she's four years older than me. So what sort of things when, she, when you were... You know, when you were children, to, to, to kind of help her or to be gen- generous and kind with her, would you do with music? I, um, I think we, we just we just sing a lot together in the house. Um, you know, we as always, you listen to your parents' record collection, so we'd sing lots of ABBA and lots of Beatles together. Um, we'd sing in church together, and then you know, music has just always been a really common ground between us. So you know, we'd, we'd maybe go to concerts and. Um, just last week, she came out to see my band perform, which which was really really lovely. And and I think, you know, I've met other people who who have siblings who are perhaps disabled or who have special needs. And you, you know, you you learn a, a certain patience, I think. Yes. Um, and and a certain acceptance of of the way things are, and maybe not always being a rush to try and change things. Mm. Um, and, so and music, music was. I mean, this was the other question I was going to ask, but music was very much in your household, was it? Yeah, it it, it was. Without it, kind of, you know, like we definitely weren't the von Trapps, um, it, but music was always there, and I knew that my parents always supported me a hundred percent in anything I wanted to do. So you know, my mum sung in the church choir and played a bit of piano. Um, my dad um, doesn't really sing or, or play an instrument, but is obsessive about bands and making mixtapes and about the kind of emotional connection that he has with music. And th- they've always supported me in, in whatever I wanted were, were to you, do. Were, but, but were you, f- did you choose to take music lessons or, because I think, I mean, my, my experience, so I, I'm, I think probably very like your dad in that I'm obsessive about music. Mm. I absolutely love it. I have been in a band um, and I've occasionally played instruments, not very well, but I, I don't think you have to. I, I have this kind of profound, we're always playing music in our house, in the car, in the wherever, you know, in the house. Did, did, was there a moment that you kind of thought, music, I get it? Do you, do you remember that moment? Yeah, I do actually. I mean, I think it was the age of about 15 or 16, um, which is quite an exciting age anyway, isn't it? But um, this was a time where I kind of, my kind of musical portfolio consisted of me um, playing guitar and writing songs in my kind of in, in a band with my mates, which was obviously the best thing ever. Yeah, know. brilliant fun. Yeah, amazing. You know, playing covers, going out, playing in rock clubs on Friday nights, and getting drunk with your mates and writing songs and record. You know, the best. Um, but also, I, I was also playing trombone in my kind of uh, community brass band, which I also really loved. 
and uh, I was taking music A level and I was doing you know other bits and bobs and I thought actually this is a really nice life like all the people I like the most and I really care about the most seem to be involved in this music lark and uh, this is this is great let's just you know let's just kind of see wh where it goes so it w wasn't really much more than that other than a realization that the things that meant most to me in my life and the people who meant most to me were, were somehow linked to the music. Um, How do you discuss, so you heard ABBA and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I became obsessive about music with no older brother. No, my parents had no interest in pop music at all. And, and so you just have to discover things. How did you mm. discover the music that you like? Well, it was interesting because this was a pre-internet, pre-Spotify yeah. era. I mean, you know, I was a teenager in the golden years of Britpop, which was great. So that was when I learned to play guitar and, you know, Oasis and, and Blur and, and all that. So, so that was obviously a great time. Music was, I guess it was very much in the mainstream, you know. But then it, I think it was really university where my taste started to fully form. So I was really lucky when I went to university to, to study music. I, I went to Liverpool University, which obviously not only has a great musical heritage, but is an incredibly dynamic still um, musically and I just, just met a great bunch of people we played music together we formed bands together and they introduced you we to music we ran open mic nights together yeah and yeah. they introduced me to particularly um, my friend Joe um, who I now play in a band with um, he introduced me to the, the realms of kind of Nick Drake and James Taylor and, and that whole incredible world of kind of 1970s songwriters that is still really um, very very dear to my heart so I think I've been listening to Nick Drake a lot this week, funnily enough. I, have you got plans to do more choirs? I mean, it, it sounds like, you, you know, you've got a formula. Yeah. It helps to pay the bills. It does. Um, why aren't you doing more? <laughs> more? Or are you going to do more? Um, at the moment, I'm not going to set up a kind of a third big community choir. Um, partly, it's partly kind of um, an emotional connection. Um, in that, you know, I, I feel like I don't want to spread myself too thin. <laughs> uh, but also, you know, with the choir does come quite a bit of admin, because, you know, because I run every aspect of it myself. So there's the admin, and there's also the commitment to performing two or three times a term. Um, and, and actually, I'm, the, the two choirs that I'm, I'm running, I'm really happy with. So I'm not looking to kind of franchise or expand in, in that kind of way. Um, but um, there are kind of new opportunities that I think or there's kind of new horizons that I'm, I'm quite excited about. So Dom, who uh, I, I um, ran all the singing at The Good Life with, we've got some really exciting plans for a kind of a new kind of format to singing workshop days. I'm, I'm, I'm purposefully not saying very much at no, the minute okay. because it's, it's kind of crystallising. You, you are doing other things yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, and what's it like coping with all that admin? Have you found yourself to be good at that? with the kind of, Because I always think that there's, there's nothing more trying than trying to get relatively small amounts of money out of a larger amount of people. Sure, yeah, well, um, it's, so, it's, part of, it's part of it, and I just look at it as part of it. And actually, the, the amount of time is, is fairly small, really. Um, I think having worked as a teacher for eight years, you know, the kind of the work ethic <laughs> and yes. the kind of approach to admin is definitely hardwired. So, you know, it doesn't, it, it, I actually don't mind it. And, and in fact, uh, something that, that I'm doing a little bit more of, which isn't sp particularly related to um, to running choirs, is actually doing a bit more kind of tour management. So in terms of the, the Spooky Men's Chorale, our big six-week 
summer tour, I actually tour managed that this year. God, that's the worst <laughs> job in the world, isn't it? It was great, I loved it. Okay. It was great. I mean, well, they I all mean, behaved themselves. Yeah, they were very well behaved, yeah. And, and it just goes back to this people skills thing, I think, actually, you know. Yes, I also get the impression, having dealt with you over the good life and, you know, arranged that with you, that you, you do exactly what you say you'll do and you're a good yeah, organiser. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you need to, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, I was born and brought up in Yorkshire and if you say you do something, you're going to do it, you know. <laughs> One of my big philosophies in life. So, <laughs> yeah. um, tell me about the bands a little bit. Okay, um, I'll start with the, the Spooky Men's Chorale. Do you know anything about the Spooky Men's Chorale? Yes, I do, I do, but yeah, maybe the yeah. people listening to the podcast don't. Okay, a potted history of the Spooky Men's Chorale is that it was born, conceived 15 years ago in the Blue Mountains in Australia by uh, Stephen Taberner, who is the self-styled spookmeister who runs a group and arranges the material and writes a lot of the material. And his idea was that he would get, um, you know, 15 or so blokes together to sing and to it sound vaguely spooky. And he... Um, really loved music from Georgia, Georgia and the Caucasus, because they have a long tradition of men singing together. And so he taught a few of those Georgian songs to um, some guys that he knew. And that was the genesis of the group. And th those, those, the songs from the Caucasus, are they, as it were, spooky? I mean... Um, they're, they're kind of spooky sounding in that the harmonies are... Um, it's kind of a little bit east meets west, you know, so there's some, uh, a, a little bit like the Bavarian choir... Um, so Bulgarian choir, Bulgarian even, choir, we had, yeah, at the good life. So, so we have yeah. some of those very, very kind of clashy harmonies, but it's also quite palatable to the ear as well. So Stephen um, is still massively excited, as I am, by that sound world, and so the group, fifteen years on, um, is now quite, you know, quite a big operation in that we do um, big tours in the UK every two years, where we headline. Um, predominantly folk festivals, so uh, festivals such as Shrewsbury Folk Festival, Towersy, Cambridge, but also this year we performed at Womad, which was fantastic. Um, how did you How did you end up in the band that was formed <laughs> that, when well, you that, were that's, a that's, teenager? That's, yeah, um, it came about through. Uh, it was in 2011. I was singing in an a cappella group in Liverpool called Sense of Sound, and we were the support act for the Spooky Men's Chorale. I'd never heard of this group, all I knew is that it sounded intriguing and that the publicity shots of lots of burly men with beards. And I think that's what gets a lot of people through the door in the first place anyway. And so we... What, that, that it just looks unusual? Yeah, it's, it looks unusual. The remit of the group is unusual. And then actually people come to the show and they laugh and they cry. And that is, that is the kind of the, the remit of the show is that it's both ridiculous, kind of absurdist in its humour, but it's also incredibly tender and beautiful as well. And, and do you record as well? Yes, yeah. We um, actually, well, so far at this point, all the bulk of the recording has been done in Australia. It's an Australian group. But when the group tours over here, um, I get to join for six weeks. And then actually, when the guys oh, so back, is there, is like depending on where they are, there's a sort of there are sort of the, the European yeah, representatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a collective. Yeah, it's a collective. Although there is now a UK kind of wing of the Spooky Men, of which I'm one sixth, called the Fistful of Spookies. And so we got tired of waiting around for the guys to come back. So we now, you know, tour smaller festivals, um, you know, kind of two, three hundred capacity venues with that group. Um, 
as opposed to the big group where we do bigger festivals and you know kind of pushing 500 venues if that makes sense right okay yeah um, so is the spooky men's chorale something that could kind of go on forever is that the idea yeah I, I think it is really I mean Stephen is the person who is at the heart of it all and uh, he continues to write new material and push it in new directions but we perform independently of him but with his but I mean there's something like you know the Penguin Cafe Orchestra I see, yes, which I think yeah, is yeah. now called Penguin Cafe but I mean it's the guy who founded its son now yeah so there's a really nice idea that rather like the, a the, family business it's a, it could, it's a continuity there yeah yeah. and I can see I can see no reason why Craftwork couldn't continue to tour in a hundred years yeah. time no well I, who knows I mean I, I suppose it'd be down to Stephen really um, in that everything emanates from him but but it does have a volition, I suppose, of its own as well at the yeah. same time. And in terms of recording, going back to what you're saying, um, uh, I actually appear on an album. I'd never actually performed with the group, but I recorded the vocals at a studio in England and it was mixed in in Australia. So that was very exciting. That's quite normal though, isn't it? It nowadays? is. I suppose yeah. it is, I'd never actually even met any of the guys in the group or anything, but I suppose that is normal, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's, I think, you know, so-and-so collaborates with so-and-so yes, from LA true. to London and yeah. they've never met or whatever. Yeah. They even make videos like that Yeah, now, they so. do, that's true. But um, um, that, no, that, that's fascinating. And then the other band, tell me about the other band. Right, so the other band is the Rough Island Band and we have been writing music Music together for about 10 years and we all came together when we were living um, and playing music together on the tiny island of St Agnes in the Isles of Scilly um, which is a place that's very very kind of dear to me. Um, How come? What took you to Scilly? I, I work I kind of put off teaching and getting uh, an inverted commas proper job well until my mid-20s really so I, I spent most of my early 20s working long summers um, on, on the island, so working on a dairy farm, making ice cream, um, and then uh, at night um, playing music in the pub and playing music around campfires. And I think actually, I was thinking about this on the way to meet you today, I think actually that was the first time where I thought, this is actually really nice, getting everybody singing and feeling good, you know, just playing the guitar and doing a few songs together. Um, and anyway, uh, the four, four of us were working over there. Joe, who I've already mentioned from in, in Liverpool. And we got together and, you know, we, we played some tunes in the pub and, and that kind of thing. But um, we actually discussed this kind of rather noble idea that the fact that the Isles of City doesn't have any surviving folk music, traditional music, you know, in contrast, say, Shetland or, you know. So we thought, well, you know, what might it sound like what might you know folk music from the Isles of Scilly sound like so our first album that we recorded in 2009 was each of us bringing some ideas to the table so there were tunes there were kind of shipwrecks shipwreck songs that kind of thing and none of us really having a background in folk music it probably sounds maybe a little bit kind of naive but there's a real kind of honesty there and and, and we you know we really loved it and but isn't that, that's interesting because you say not having any knowledge of folk music. I mean, didn't folk music come from people who didn't have any knowledge yes, of folk music? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I suppose what, what I mean is... Now there's I'm a vernacular, but presumably when someone lived on the Silly Isles 300 years ago, they... Exactly. You know. Yeah, that, no, that's very true. And, and I suppose there's an honesty that, I, I, I suppose what, I suppose 10 years later, having spent a lot of time around folk festivals, you're aware of people who are born into folk music and you kind of have the credentials if that makes sense yes but I, 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 um, I always I'm always dubious of that kind of notion of purity pure, because yeah, I think yeah, because absolutely. I think that it, it stifles creativity absolutely yeah and, and all great music that makes advances for music comes out of someone saying you know essentially yeah fuck the rules because I want to do it like this absolutely and I think actually 10 years later that's the exact 
kind of um, viewpoint that we've come to. So uh, I, I came back last weekend, we've just been on a short UK tour to support our most recent album, which is our fourth album. Um, Where can people get that? Uh, they can get that on SoundCloud. Okay. Um, sorry, no, on our Bandcamp even. It might be on SoundCloud, but our Bandcamp. Okay. Um, I'll put the details. Yeah, yeah, no, please do. This. And this um, actually was the result of a pledge music campaign where we thought we'd, we've written three albums of uh, worth of material, our responses to these amazing islands, to the stories, to the history, to the people. And we wanted to kind of tap into other people's notions of, of place and why it's important because it's much more than a place, it's much more, you know, than a place where people just go on holiday, uh, you know, and have a pleasant time. It's a place that people really connect with yes. spiritually. Yeah. And so we started a pledge music campaign where we asked people to submit poems or spoken word, photographs, stories, paintings, which we would then use as a raw material for the new album. Um, and that was the most uh, amazing process we were sent. Did loads of people send yeah, us things? Yeah, loads of people sent us things. Uh, and so we had this incredible wealth of material um, to then try and put into music, uh, or music and words. And so that process has taken the last year and it's just been so enjoyable, really, really fun, through from recording sounds in the island to incorporating the spoken word to writing the music together. And then on the tour last week, we actually met almost every person who had sent us something and they actually heard our response to it. So do you, at, at, at the shows, do you talk about this yeah, process? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. We made it very, very clear. I think maybe for a few years we felt a bit embarrassed that A, you know, we weren't in inverted commas proper folk musicians and B, not all of us were actually from the Isles of Silly. People had this whimsical notion that we were all living out there and writing music every day. Um, well, my but, experience is if you go to the um, west coast of Scotland or the islands, is that a huge amount of people are incomers anyway. Absolutely, yeah. And, and likewise in Scilly, it's always been very, very cosmopolitan. James, as I said at the beginning of this, had brought his guitar with him. So I asked him if he would sing me a song. Um, and of course, he was very happy to do so. Uh, he discussed the Rough Island Band, as you uh, will have heard. And so this is James singing to me a song by the Rough Island Band. And if you listen very carefully at the end, you'll be able to hear me on backing vocals. I really hope that doesn't ruin things too much.
song for memories past. For this sacred place, so oh, let's all raise a glass. We drink with me now as a fire is burning tonight. It's a midsummer song for the lovers and friends. This is our story, no beginning, no end. Hold me close as the embers are dancing tonight. Come on, go So thank you very much to James for that, uh, an inspiring and um, really lovely conversation. As I said at the beginning, um, I'll just repeat what um, the names of the bands that he's in. Uh, the Rough Island Band is the band that he made um, music with on the Silly Isles. And um, he actually gave me a CD which I really like called This Island of Yours. They recorded that in 2017. And you can find out more about that at roughislandband.com. The other band that he discussed that I think sound fascinating and you may be able to find um, touring at some point are the Spooky Man's Chorale. And um, James's choirs are uh, obviously fully booked, but if you happen to live in the Northwest, you may be able to find a space in one of those. Anyway, thank you very much to you for joining me. Thanks so much, James, for doing this. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that. And um, thank you very much to my friend, Jim Friend, for editing. I will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.